Hello, fellow dog-powered sports enthusiasts. This is Chelsea Murray, and you are listening to Positively Dog-Powered, a podcast that dives deep into the real world of positive reinforcement training and dog-powered sports. All right, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Positively Dog-Powered. Excited to bring back a friend and colleague in the dog training world, Nina Russell. Nina, thank you so much for joining us today. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. So one of the things I always love talking to you about is like breaking down all the small nuances of training and emotional regulation, because obviously in, in your sports that you enjoy with your dogs and working with um, high excitability or high arousal dogs, it's something that you really are in tune to in order to make sure that they're kind of performing at a level that their brain is still functioning and we have nice clean behaviors and cue responses still. So today I'm kind of excited to look at that from where it begins with our puppies who might have big feelings, which I feel like is really appropriate for a dog powered sports because especially for puppies that are purpose bred or even purebred dogs that are bred to be higher drive working dogs, we can often get a lot of these big feelings and it can be very challenging as an owner to figure out exactly what you need to do. And oftentimes that stereotypical obedience, you know, teach them to sit, teach them to stay, isn't really appropriate and oftentimes can be really frustrating for these puppies. So I'm very excited yeah. to talk to you about this topic yeah. today. Before we dive in, do you mind giving our listeners a little introduction into you and kind of how you got started in dogs and dog training? Yeah. Um, so I got started in 2000 and gosh, 2007. 2008 um, professionally as I've been training full-time since then and I've always been into dogs and I got a Doberman to because I wanted a Doberman and uh, I wanted to train and I found a local Schutzen club um, now called IGP sport and it kind of went from there and I realized I did not want to be uh, in an office all day and I wanted to train dogs and I it, it was less common back then I think um, and so I just kept knocking on doors and <laughs> pursuing mentors and education until I found a way to make it work. Um, and now I currently have a four-year-old Malinois and a Malinois puppy. Um, and then we have two little mix, two mixy mixes that are from a shelter and uh, owner rehome. Um, and I've had other other dogs in the past, shepherds and Akita, various, various other working breeds. Love that you have that background too in different kinds of working dogs, because I think that while there is a similarity across all of them in terms of their desire to do things and their propensity to have big feelings, their ability to regulate it and their ability to really kind of hone in on somebody for big training sessions really varies based on those breeds. Yes, absolutely. Um, I do think that today when you're going to coach people, uh, you do need a little bit of breed expertise and it, um, it pays to either know that or have colleagues that you can refer to um, 
I know when I had my Akita puppy, I was asking you questions about some of the northern breeds because some of it was very new um, to me. So, and that was even after, you know, 10 years of working with um, lots of pet dogs and lots of clients and lots of uh, sport dogs. Um, you just don't, I did not see them as often. Um, so, and they were, and the Akita was very different than all the Husky clients that I had. So, yeah, I think it is important to have depth and breadth of experience. Absolutely. Now, when you, I know you mentioned IGP with the dogs, but I know that you kind of do a variety of activities with them outside. Can you tell us a little bit about kind of what you enjoy with your dogs on in your free time? Yes, um, I love hiking. Uh, thanks to you, I got into Paint Across and um, Tana Hiking, as well as some bike shoring. Um, I keep it pretty tame. And uh, I also do um, backpacking with my dogs. We camp, uh, we car camp, we overland, uh, paddle boarding, all kinds of paddle, all kinds of paddling, really. Um, and then, of course, I have done disc and dock diving and barn hunts and ATC obedience and rally and all of that stuff. A little bit of everything. Yeah. So from working with clients and certainly raising our own puppies, I think you and I both have uh, a lot of experience working with puppies and raising puppies or helping clients raise puppies. But you definitely, depending on breed, depending on early, you know, early learning socialization that's happened with the breeder, um, or even in a shelter environment, the type of puppy that we bring home can vary drastically. And we can see quite a range from, you know, a very easy puppy that kind of figures everything out and almost comes home from the breeder potty trained to the kinds of puppies that we're going to talk about today, which are puppies with big feelings. And I know that when we talk about puppies, you know, one of our big key takeaways that we always address is proper socialization when we are raising these puppies. And I know we're going to dive into a little bit more of the nuances with our puppies with big feelings, but when you've got a puppy with big feelings, um, does your socialization plan change at all for them? Are you focusing on, you know, different foundations for your socialization? Um, yes. I mean, it's, it's all kind of the same, but the, the stakes are higher when you have a big feelings dog, that is, especially if they're going to turn into a dog that could be potentially dangerous, um, either because they are, so excited they're pulling you down or they're provoking um, fear or aggression in other dogs because they're so excited to see other people. Um, or like with my breed, the Malinois, um, they can be they can be dangerous. Um, but it could also be things like a, a little terrier that gets fixated on wheels and wants to like grab cars that go by or, or something. So um, I think when we have dogs who will run headlong into disaster with uh, enthusiasm, then we need to realize that the stakes may be higher when we're socializing and, and prioritizing and figuring out what we're gonna fit into this tiny little window of time we have for true socialization. Um, because after 
that window closes, we're just normalizing. We're not actually socializing. Um, and that's a little bit uh, in the weeds, but I think it's important to, to understand um, what the fallout is going to be if we have things go wrong. And so understanding that sit and watch me may be able to wait until much later uh, when we really need to focus on engagement or um, cooperation or understanding what really drives our dog so that we can use that and build it into our foundation of communication. So there's a ton of what you just said that I want to dive into, but before we do that, I want for our listeners, you know, I think that sometimes to a novice dog owner, we can look at a puppy or an adolescent and think, okay, well, you're just a little wild, like you're a puppy. And I think unless you have experience of knowing what that can look like down the road, unless measures are taken, it can be hard maybe for somebody to identify, you know, air quote, puppy shenanigans versus a puppy that really is having big feelings that need to be addressed properly. So what kind of, you know, traits or behaviors would you see and identify in a puppy with big feelings that would kind of take them and put them under this umbrella that we're talking about today? Um, so lots of times it can be external things like barking or snatching or um, even growling, uh, whether in play or with regarding something. Uh, and it can also be internal, like the puppy that you get some food out and they're like shaking and chattering or they go very still and like lower their head and look at things um, like a border collie. So um, it's really, it's things that kind of fall outside of the umbrella of normal where you go, oh, like your average golden retriever or mixy mix is not doing this. You know, they're not, uh, running headlong after a leaf that's well you know they're they're just a little bit extra um and it is it is kind of tangled up in whether the puppy's getting enough enrichment and freedom of movement because i think um in my experience with a lot of i get a lot of clients with like the shepherds and the working breeds um they are being restricted a lot uh, and I think it comes from them just being a little bit extra to begin with, and and it it worries people, and so they try and shut down the puppy biting and the grabbing the feet and the grabbing everything and um, the barking at you, and it makes them nervous, and so they they try and restrict, 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 uh, and and then taking things out of these puppies, picking things up, and kind of hectic about it. And so we, they end up taking things from the puppy out of their mouth all the time. And so it kind of builds into this uh, perfect storm of the puppy has big feelings. And then we're like kind of building drive accidentally by trying to suppress it and contain them when we need to be working with it, not against it. Yeah, I think that's a really good point too, because I think that, you know, while barking might be normal for puppy or growling when we're playing with toys under certain circumstances or, you know, picking things up we shouldn't have. All of those are normal puppy behaviors, but if you're seeing it to an extent you haven't seen it in another dog before 
or the ways that you're attempting to address it are either not resolving it, not improving it, or are making it worse. I think those are all kind of, you know, moments for us as owners to pause and go, hmm, okay, let me take a step back and let me look at this puppy. And I love that you first brought up making sure that the puppy has all their needs met because that's huge, right? If our, you know, exercise needs and enrichment needs and ability to run and be free and explore are not met, we're definitely going to see an increase in these undesired behaviors popping up in these puppies. And of course, if our puppy already has big feelings and then we're adding in more restraint, more confinement, less freedom, less choice, we are going to see kind of an uptick in these behaviors from our puppies. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a fine balance, right? Because we also both see the overtired puppy that behaves the same way. Um, mm -hmm. So you really, we have to look at, at what's occurring and when and what we're doing. Um, so it, it does help to have some guidance if you've not had a big feeling puppy. Um, and even if you have, I, I'm raising a Malma puppy right now. And um, I've reached out to several colleagues just to be like, hey, you know, this is a different puppy than my last puppy. What do you think of this? Yep. I, I did the same thing. You know, I think it's so important for people to hear that professionals even will seek out, you know, communication with other professionals because it's so important to have somebody qualified and credentialed that you can bounce ideas off of. Um, my big feelings puppy just turned one and I did the same thing as she was growing up. As I saw different things, I was communicating with different professionals that fortunately were also friends of mine. And I think that's so important because Sometimes when you're living in the moment with the behavior or with the puppy, it can be hard to not have a biased opinion of it, you know, and of course, as professionals, we're trained to see things and observe things for what they are, try not to put labels on it and try not to, um, you know, come up with ideas in our head about why something might be occurring, but really to analyze a behavior, but it can be hard to do. It can definitely be hard to do. So yeah. as, as we're living with these puppies with big feelings, I find that one of the most challenging aspects is going to be living with the puppy at home, right? Because oftentimes when we're raising puppies, we'll have periods where we're in training, you know, when we take them out, they potty, we're exercising them, we're providing enrichment, and then they have you know, maybe nap time or time in an X-pen. And oftentimes puppies with big feelings um, can often have emotions about being confined or being on their own. So when you're working with clients or even raising one of your own, how, how do you kind of balance um, working with the puppy and teaching skills, but also just how easy is it to live with this puppy? Um, it's so individual and, um, for, for myself, I'm really lucky because I live on acreage that's wooded. My dogs personally and the dogs that I board and train get a lot of freedom of movement. And it really, I know it's one of those things that you can't replicate. Um, and I'm just very, very lucky to have it. And it does make a huge difference. Um, so we go for, you know, twice a day walk in the woods on trails on our, like I walk out the front door and go for a hike. Um, and it makes a huge difference for my dogs. Um, also, 
having another dog. I know this is like, um, you don't get a dog to train a dog, but when you have an adult trained dog, um, there are times that like I have a nine month old son that I'm dealing with him and my puppy is playing with my four-year-old Malinois. Um, and that is not like a blanket solution to go out and <laughs> fix your big sitting puppy, but it does help. Um, it can take some of the, the onus off of you. If, if you have that, um, you know, really well-trained socialized dog that is good with puppies, you know, you, if your puppy has an auntie or an uncle, um, it surely does help. If you don't have any of that, um, or for some reason I can't use that with a client dog or something like that, um, then I do want as much freedom as possible. Um, and this is like, I've kind of gone the other direction from when I started training, you know, more than 10 years ago, where we did a lot of confinement. Um, and now I'm, I try to do the least amount of confinement possible. And when I do, I try and set it up so that it's, it's very much not a big deal, but it's from, it's part of life from the very beginning. Um, so whether it's a crate or a gate, um, I also use outdoor runs um, and I'm using food toys, but there's times when I need the puppy to do nothing. Um, those are all things that I'm thinking about and preparing the puppy or the client puppy for um, because doing nothing is a big part of life. and um, most puppies are happy to slip into that if we set things up for them. Um, and forced napping is probably the one that I see slip the most because it's very easy to just let a puppy keep going. And when you have a driven dog, they will. Um, so I watch for things like when Auntie Grits, which is my older dog, is insisting that the puppy keeps playing because no one else plays with her because she's kind of a lot. Um, and he's done, he will keep going, but I have to step in and say, okay, it's nap time. Um, and that means a dark room in a crate or behind a gate, whatever it takes to help that puppy calm down. Um, I might do a, a raw bone or a lick project to help that puppy come down. Um, also, I can do a little training session, like a 30-second training session, just where I get the dog off of the tie arousal thing that they were doing, whether it's chasing or whatever, and chase some treats with me, and then I bring it down even more where they're eating treats off the floor, and then I bring it down even more and say, here's a lick project for you in the crate, and then we can fall asleep. Um, so it's, it's really a matter of, knowing what that puppy needs and um, helping them stair step down into whatever they need, like rest time or, hey, hang with me on the couch or um, chew on a bone on your own. So um, that also might look like the dog, you know, chewing on a bone and we go sit on the floor with them and get them all riled up. Well, stand up, <laughs> you know, <laughs> stand up and let them uh, do their chew project because they are maybe not in the headspace for petting and we can barely, very easily get them in the headspace for bitey, bitey, bite, bite your face um, instead. 
I'm glad that you mentioned the transitions because I do find that the puppies that have big feelings have a hard time with transitions. And if it's been a while since you've had a puppy, you know, we're used to well-trained adult dogs, you know, us being able to go, okay, we're done. And they're like, okay. And they'll disengage from what they were doing and go settle. And I think it can be easy for us to forget that that is a learned behavior, you know, that dogs don't come pre-programmed with that ability to turn things off and turn them, turn them on and then turn them off, especially for our puppies who have big feelings, because oftentimes, you know, if we think of this excitability as, um, you know, a scale, the longer they're engaged in something, the higher that excitability is getting and the harder it's going to be for them to get themselves back down to the bottom of that scale where they are able to relax, you know? And so I think that if we just simply interrupt something and then kind of, oh, here's your bone, go do this. I think it's really hard for them to disengage. They're probably not going to be interested in that bone. And we're probably going to see these big outbursts of, undesired behaviors like jumping on the gate, barking, growling, um, you know, because they don't have that ability yet to self-soothe. So I think that's so important to, to be mindful of those transitions and make sure that we're working to help the puppy, as you said, kind of walk down that staircase nice and slow. And it doesn't mean that I'm forever going to have to interrupt play with a training session, right? It's just helping them learn what it feels like to walk back down and that that's a good thing. And eventually with practice, they'll be able to do that on their own. Yes, absolutely. So when we're dealing with our puppies on a day-to-day basis, I think it can be easy for our puppies who really enjoy things or who are very alert of their surroundings to um, be aware of schedules, be aware of precursors to certain activities that can cause excitement. And while I do want to talk about that in relation to our sports and how that can be problematic, I also think that that attention to their surroundings can be beneficial for us as humans and trainers because we can use routine to kind of help the puppy settle in moments that we need to. So when we're kind of looking at our life skills for these puppies, how important is predictability in what you're going to do and what the puppy should do for your routines? Um, I think it is hugely important to have predictability, but that does not mean you have to be a rigid schedule. And I, I think there has to be a happy medium um, because some of it comes down to personal preference. Like I'm not a rigid schedule person. I'm a go with the flow person. Um, and so my puppies need predictability because I will fly by the seat of my pants. Um, and then uh, if you're on the other end where you're like tightly scheduled, um, that can really diminish their resilience if you don't teach them to go with the flow a little bit. So um, even things like feeding at the exact same time every day, um, it's not the end of the world, but I just, I cannot stand when dogs get super stressed because mealtime is late, you know, and it's just, that's life. Like sometimes meals are going to be at different times, especially when you're traveling and doing dog sports and competing, like it's, it's going to be a part of life. So I need them to have some predictability in some things. 
but then also be able to go with the flow and some things. And then they, those things help each other, right? So if we're going with the flow and we're traveling, but then I have a nice, a nice setup of predictability for mealtime or calling time or bedtime <clears throat> um, or walks for the bathroom and not for play, because it looks the same way every time, even though it doesn't occur in the same environment or in this at the same time every day, they say, oh, I know what this is. And they're able to go out and go to the bathroom at a hotel they've never been to and not think it's playtime um, or not be too distracted, come in and then be like, oh, I have to go now at 3 a.m. Um, so the predictability and go with the flow is really important, I think, especially for big feelings dogs. <clears throat> for life skills, particularly because they can be so distracted or be so um, excited about something that they do forget to go to the bathroom. And that is very frustrating when you're trying to like line up to go to trial or to training or into class or, you know, go, go back inside to the hotel and go to sleep kind of thing. So when I know we kind of talked a little bit about our socialization with these puppies is kind of that variability in routine and resilience, something that you're focusing on from day one with them. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I want to be able to take my puppies and my client puppies anywhere, go anywhere, do anything. And then to also know what's happening based on what we're doing. So when we're loading up, we load up the same way, but you don't ride in the same crate every time. So I have a, a van with multiple crates. Um, and my particular breed, Malinois, they pattern so easily and they get a little bit like screwy. So I want them to know, hey, we're loading up, but I might switch crates sometimes. Um, so it's not, I don't like them writing in the same crate every time because then when something happens and, and this happens to me, um, I need you to get in a different crate, then it's just like hectic, frantic. I have to go in this one, I have to go in this one and it's crazy and I've seen it. It's happened to me because I get complacent about just loading one dog in the same box and then I can't for whatever reason and it's just uh, uh, hard for the brain to compute. So, um, yeah, I think it is, it is really important from the very beginning to show them predictability within the go with the flow model. I love that. I, that's something I do too, from day one, because obviously as a trainer, my schedule is not the same every day. And so I think for somebody who's brain works more like ours, where every day is a little different. I think it's much easier for us to automatically incorporate that into our training with our puppies because it's just the way we function. But I think for a lot of people that might work nine to five, that can be a lot harder for them to kind of visualize how they might add that variability in. But I think it's important to note that those big picture concepts are still going to be the same. It's still going to be, you know, allowing playtime, but interrupting before arousal is too high. And then we 
walk down the stairs and then we relax. It's still going to be when I'm sitting down to chill, you are also sitting down to relax and maybe you have something to chew. Um, for me, it's always going to be when we walk outside on leash, we're going to potty first and then we get to go do our training and adventure stuff. So it's those little pieces that I'm still expecting to be the same, but maybe time of day for them is different. Location might be different. And I think whenever you can, trying to observe the puppy is really helpful. You know seeing what that puppy might be struggling with, what that puppy might be anticipating in that routine and kind of take that as a cue to go, oh, I need to switch something up because you just have already predicted that I'm going to do this, right? And I think that a lot of times for our puppies with big feelings, they pick up on those routines in ways that we don't expect. And then that can end up hurting us a little bit down the road when those feelings get even bigger. Yeah. When you are sitting down and doing a training session with one of these puppies that has big feelings. I know that, well, I, I'm assuming that it's very similar for you in early stages where we're not necessarily focusing on sit and down and stays and healing because those types of obedience skills can come down the road at any age. And when our puppies are young, there are much more kind of complex, but much more organic things that I tend to work on with these puppies um, in regards to regulating their emotions. Um, when you're setting up a training session, how often are you going in with a preconceived idea of what you want to do versus observing the puppy in front of you and saying, you're having trouble with this right now. So I'm going to go ahead and start working on, you know, another behavior to help you with that. Um, if I'm going into a formal training session, I'm always going to go in with the goal, uh, that is, especially with my sport puppies, that if I'm working on a sport skill and, um, it's going to be within the progression of like, I'd like to be at this place in year, in three years. And so I'm starting this at 12 weeks and that's going to build. So I'm always going to go into it with, with that in mind. Um, and a spreadsheet helps me keep that straight but I'm flexible. So if I get in, like, let's say we get out um, at a park and I'm going to work on healing or, you know, whatever, and, um, or chasing food in my hands, but just something. And then I see that my puppy is struggling with the tennis players in the distance. We now shift, we now shift focus. So um, yes, I'm always going to go into a training session with something in mind, um, but I am also equally going to focus on the puppy in front of me. So um, if we get out and you can't take food, I'm at, you know, at the van door, we don't go any further. You, you know, you, I have to have something to change behavior. So if we just end up sitting at the vehicle and watching, um, or you, you know, the puppy wants to get back in, or play a little tug, like we will shift gears immediately um, because that becomes, some things become more urgent than the big important concepts that I have planned for long-term training. So let's, if you don't mind, dive into that for just a minute, because I know a lot of clients when, for example, we'll use leash training again, because that's what you had mentioned, that 
if we have the idea or the plan that I'm going to go to this park and we're going to work on loose leash walking, it can be very frustrating for people if we go to the park with that in mind and that doesn't end up happening, right? When we have to switch gears. I also think that for a more novice dog owner or a more novice trainer, it can be hard to identify those key pieces that we would look at and say, yes, you're ready for more or hold up, (laughs) you're not ready for what we're doing. We need to take a step back. So what are some of those things that you evaluate, for example, like the ability to take food that would indicate they're ready for that next little sliver of, can you do this? Can you do this? Yeah. So first it goes back to those predictable patterns. Like when we get out, we go potty and it's not playtime. Um, I'm kind of ignoring you. It's, it's a whole um, vibe, if you will, like we're potty time. We go and we're staying close to the vehicle, but I'm also looking like, is the dog going into potty behavior sniffing or are they just standing there looking around? Um, so that's my first one. Like you, you've known this potty routine that we've done since day one, even at home where we go out, potty unleash, whatever. Um, and then I'm going to come back and we're going to reset for training and, um, or have some kind of pattern there of, okay, now it's time to, to do training, whether that's, um, a focus session on me, or if we're doing more of a sniffy walk, I'm, I might continue from the potty, like, hey, we're going to leave the, we're going to put the long line on, whatever it is my pattern is that tells them what we're going to do. So if we're talking formal training session, I'm going to expect the dog to be focused on me. And it's like we're in, um, it's like a dance, you know, where we're having a conversation, a really meaningful conversation where I'm going to stay focused on my puppy and puppy's going to stay focused on me. And that's my expectation. And so if I don't have a puppy that will eat and eat in, a, in a enjoyably, in an enjoyable way, so not just take food that I put in their mouth and chew it while they're still looking at something else, but will they take food as reinforcement? Do they, are they like, yes, that was great. Let's do it again. Um, if I don't have that, I can't move on. And so I personally have a, a set of baseline behaviors that I cycle through um, that are, are, are markers, like a clicker, um, but they're basically just different words that tell the dog where the food is gonna be or where the toy is gonna be, what my expectation is. And I know what that baseline looks at, at looks like at um, an ideal place, like low distractions in the living room or in the backyard, wherever our normal training place is. And if we don't, if we're off that baseline, then I'm taking note of that. And so we're either going to turn down the environment or we're going to give some time or we're going to, um, we're going to change something so that I can get to that baseline because that baseline means my dog's brain is ready to learn um, and, and continue the training session. So if I'm off that baseline, then my training session might be learning how to get back to that baseline for that puppy. Um, and that might be it. We might never get to the training session. Um, so for me, it's eating a lot of eating food and eating food in a predictable way. Um, so for example, if I tell them I'm going to throw a piece of food for them and I tell them, I say toss, I expect them to whip their head around and look at my hand to where the food is going to be thrown and then they're going to go get it. So if they don't do that, then that's off my baseline. 
Um, if I know what their tug game looks like at home and they're kind of lackadaisical or um, they're too intense, um, like they can't even, they can't drop it, they can't switch, you know, whatever um, my baseline is, again, I'm going to adjust and think about what is different here that we need to do to help that learner get back to the baseline behavior so that we can learn new things. I think that is so important. And it means that we're doing a lot of observation at home when we're engaging with our puppies so that we can determine what that baseline is. When it comes to our dog powered sports or any sport, realistically, you know, oftentimes these puppies that have big feelings will have really big feelings when they find the love of the sport that we've decided to give them, right? And I think for dog powered sports, it puts a new twist on things because if we're doing a training run and harness, food cannot be our reinforcer, right? Because we don't want them eating food close to a run. But I think that means that we as trainers have to be a little creative because it means that we have to evaluate that process, right? And oftentimes when we're taking puppies on the trail for the first, second, third time, we don't really know what to expect. We don't know necessarily what's going to happen. They've gotten used to the bike or us running. They've gotten used to equipment and we're kind of seeing how they feel in harness. And then I think it's really important to observe how those first couple sessions go so that you can evaluate as that puppy's excitement increases for the sport, where we might have some potential, I'll say air quote, problem areas where these big feelings might be coming out. And then we need to go back to the drawing board with training to figure out how we can split apart this routine into small pieces where we can use, you know, food rewards or access to environment or toy rewards to help kind of shape more desirable behaviors in certain areas. So I imagine that that concept is not necessarily unique to dog powered sports in the sense that once we give our dogs an outlet for something that they really enjoy, we can see these big feelings come out and we can start to identify gaps or potential gaps in our training plan where we need to go back and readdress some things. So as you are raising a puppy with the idea of doing a sport, how observant are you about this anticipation that the puppy might have for getting to do the thing? And then at what point do you decide to kind of step in and either end the session or bring things back down again? Um, yeah, that is the age old question of, cause you're always balancing like building drive um, or building this reinforcement history, building the desire to do the thing, um, to do the work because the work becomes the reinforcement for the behaviors that we like. Um, so you're balancing that with, when do I put some brakes on? When do I put control on? Because if you put control on too early, you get less um, less enthusiasm. Um, and if you put them on too late, you're you're in a bad you're in a tough situation, right? So when I'm teaching a 
puppy and I'm looking for the anticipation, uh, depending on the sport, I'll basically have kind of a checklist of behaviors of what, a, what am I seeing? So um, if it's protection, am I seeing them cue into the, like they seem to know what the activity is and they're, you know, pulling forward in the harness to get to the place. Um, and so, yes, they're, they're doing that. Okay, so then I might say, and this is just hypothetical because it's gonna be different. Then I might say, okay, can the dog give me eye contact before I put the harness on or before I um, cue the dog to go to protection or before the bad, you know, the helper comes out into the picture? Can I get eye contact? So uh, essentially I'm going to have a, a list of behaviors that I'm looking for that I need for success um, as far as what the dog needs to commit and bring to the table, uh, like pulling in harness, being ready to go, looking on the trail, whatever it, whatever it is. Uh, and then I'm going to start adding in some checks of, do I have your brain still? Can you respond to this baseline behavior? Um, and it's going to be little things. And then I'm, I'm going to build on that <clears throat> so that we are working together, even in high, high arousal when the dog is, giving their all, that their brain is still listening to me. I think that's an excellent point because excitement can be there and desire to do the thing can be there. But if it's high enough on the scale, we will eventually hit a point where the brain stops being able to function productively and we'll see a dog that won't be able to respond to cues right? And so that would be a place where we could fairly easily identify, this is a, a big marker for me. This is too much. I need a lot less than this. And of course, in the moment then, that's really challenging, right? Because it's really unfair for the dog to just say, no, we're not going to do the thing because we've let that much excitement build up. And I also think it's unrealistic to then say, we've reached this point of excitement. You just need to calm down before we can do it, right? Because as we talked about already, especially for these puppies that have big feelings and we've built this excitement for the sport, that ability to kind of self-regulate those emotions is really, really challenging. And I would consider that like the most difficult situation that we could ask them to do that in. As you can imagine, raising puppies with big feelings is a process, and it definitely takes a little bit of practice. Needless to say, Nina and I kept the conversation going, so you'll have to wait until our next episode is released to get part two of this conversation. But if you're a member of our Positively Dog Powered Patreon community, head over to our Patreon page now so that you can get caught up on part two right away. And for more information about that, be sure to check out our show notes if you'd like to join and support the podcast for as little as a dollar a month. So, until next time, have fun chasing tails on the trails.